Welcome to the Theater of the Midnight Sun, the 21st century stage for stories, with your host and writer, Michael McGee. This is Michael McGee, and at this venue you'll hear stories of mystery, history, fantasy, farce, sci-fi, spy-fi, the everyday, and the absurd. And pretty much all will be performed by a bunch of regular Joes, just friends and colleagues who in their mild-mannered day jobs are everything from accountants to winery consultants. None of whom, including your host, have a day of experience on the stage, and boy does it show. So hold on tight for the next story on this, The Theater of the Midnight Sun. On the eve of the U.S.-Iraq War, a group of struggling research scientists in Turkey discovers a tiny object that proves to be incredibly old. So old, in fact, and so unusual, it could spell the end of life as we know it. In the story, Uniform. We were bored. Me, particularly. Part of my nature, I guess. Our lab, the Galata Radiocarbon Center of Istanbul, had had its staff and funding cut three months earlier, chiefly due to America's pending invasion of Iraq. As a result, our futures were uncertain, to say the least. And with fewer and fewer carbon dating jobs in the queue, the Turkish economy bottoming out due to the lack of tourists after 9-11, and our university overseers unsure exactly what to do with us for the moment, shut us down or wait things out, I and the rest of my staff were trying to invent work where we could, take on hand-me-down assignments from friends at other labs, keep our spirits up, and frankly just give ourselves some reason at all for coming into the office every day. So that was my excuse, anyway, for my latest, well, shall we call it, experiment, which could hardly be called scientific, but it did past the time. <laughs> it had all started because I'd come across a rather intriguing paperback, and on that particular day, I had slyly flipped through its pages, out of sight of my friend Kyung, our second-in-command at the lab, and managed to find an especially juicy passage in the book. Hell, it was hard not to find one. So I waved at Dudley, one of our lab techs, pulling him away from the spectrometer he was tinkering with. What is it, Paul? Dudley was the new kid on the block at our lab, all of five foot two, and over the last few months, my most ardent partner in crime. Given his white spiky crew cut and earrings, he looked more like a rock star than a physicist. But then, with a name like Dudley, I suppose you have to overcompensate. I showed him the novel, and an evil grin spread across that Welsh baby face of his. Find something good, eh? I showed him the book's title, called Scotland Mon Amour. It was one of those more hands-on romance novels. The titillating cover portrayed a Highlander in full kilt and little else, embracing a blonde-haired maiden in evening gown, both their bosoms gleaming. According to the book jacket, Scotland Mon Amour was the sweeping romantic tale of a big beefy Highlander named Angus who traveled through time to woo an elegant concert violinist and professional virgin named Melody whose specialty was the Sibelius Violin Concerto, and of late, making love to big, beefy Highlander types. On the back cover were the words, He would change her world overnight. In fact, I planned to change old Melody right then, along with their Scottish countryside, meaning neither she nor the toned and tartaned Angus 
would be appearing in today's performance. Instead, all names would be changed to condemn the innocent. Dudley, we'll start at this paragraph. Got it? <laughs> Got it. We tried to keep our sophomore giggling under wraps so our co-worker Kyung wouldn't hear us. Before we wanted him to hear us, anyway. After all, this was for his benefit. What with Kyung's archy bunker-like attitudes, almost debilitating homophobia, and his uncanny ability to offend every woman, child, man, and animal within earshot, our Korean comrade was far too easy a target and far too entertaining not to push his buttons pretty much every hour. Even then, we loved the guy. I popped the intercom button open on the lab phone and vaguely heard the speakers crackle to life in the adjacent rooms, including, and most importantly, the one at Kyung's workstation. Our lab was a nine-person office, but a third were gone today, including a certain Mr. Mustafa Cochin, another of our budding young intercom starlets-to-be. I signaled deadly, and he hit the bells of his son's toy xylophone like NBC on the air. And so, in my best masterpiece theater voice, I began. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Galata Lab Theatre. Tonight, we'll be reading from a classic tale of love and lust set in the little-known highlands of, well, looky here, Korea, in a tale titled Korea Mon Amour. Our story is the pants-pounding tale of two humans who just can't get enough of each other. We join our lovers. Mustafa and Kyung, amidst an impassioned embrace in Chapter 7, Fire Down Below. <clears throat> if their kisses had been hot before, they were an inferno now. Kyung burned with desire, his passion bubbling inside him like a volcano. I cued deadly. Oh, Mustafa, say it, Kyung panted. Say you want me. I heard the distant sounds of chairs being thrown back, the drumbeat of footsteps, heavy and desperate, quickly approaching. Open up this door! Kyung could feel the Scotsman's hands tearing at his body, feeling their way up over the hills and valleys of his womanhood. Paul, cut it out! Dudley tried to block the bucking door with his shoulder as my reading picked up speed, but Kyung, his manhood in peril, pushed until he got a foot in, then bulled his way into the room. He swiped at the book in my hand, but being that I was a half foot taller, I held it out of reach over his head, Paul. reading all the faster. Lips trembling with ecstasy, Kyung, normally shy, <laughs> Paul. suddenly found himself tugging at Mustafa's rough-hewn kilt. Just then, Kyung turned and slammed the intercom off. Afterward, he wheeled about in his Panama hat, grabbed a handful of skin at my waist, and twisted like hell. Hey! My arms dropped, and he snatched the book from me. That hurt, Kyung. Good. Mission accomplished. Now, leave this book alone, Pa. It's my wife's. Sure it is. It's about the only thing she could find in this tallhead town in English. God help us if they actually print something here in Korean. With his stick-figure frame, narrow face, and pointy nose and chin, in the wrong light, Kyung looked a little bit like a barracuda. A barracuda that, well, had no idea it was a barracuda. In other words, a harmless pinhead of a predator in a Panama hat. And where's that stupid shoelace? Paul! What shoelace? The one that was in the book. The bookmark? This is a shoelace? Give me that bum skull. That is not for you. For once, would you just keep your hands off my stuff? 
It is a sad and tragic fact that I need to be entertained. Well, Paul, entertain yourself the way you usually do, with your sticky magazines. You know, I never thought of that. Hey, Dudley, sounds like a lot of lab theaters act too. Don't even think about it. Kyung picked his backpack up off the floor and shoved the novel down into it deep, apparently thinking he could bury it from yours truly. Oh, how little he knew me. Then he froze, gaping at the tiny stove his pack had been resting near, and the small pot that sat atop it, filled with water. What the? This pot still isn't boiling? This has been on for the last hour. Pa, do you keep unplugging this? No, cross my heart. Kyung turned up the intensity of his stare, implying a fib on my part. Understandable, I guess. Outside of today's installment of Galata Lab Theater, in past months I'd done things like reprogram the speed dial numbers on his work phone. For instance, replacing the number for his physical trainer with that of Istanbul's one and only Dunkin' Donuts. In place of his wife's phone number, a live sex chat line. Another time, I'd lacquered the earpiece of his phone with foot ointment, waited till he returned to his desk, and then called him. Come to think of it, all my jokes of late had somehow revolved around the phone. Prankster minimalism, I guess. I don't know why he'd blame this burner thing on me. Ow! Jiminy Pete! What happened? I just put my finger in it, and look at it! The water doesn't look hot to me. There's not a bubble to it. Well, I'm telling you, it's freaking hot! Dudley, where's the thermometer? Right here. Stick it in there. What's it say? 30 degrees. 40. 70. Jumping now. 200. 300. Bloody hell. It's reading about 490 degrees. But the water's not even bubbling. What the? Maybe the thermometer's broken. Hey, hold a sec. The reading just went out. <sighs> Guess it's broken now. That was a $300 thermometer. Don't remind me. Paul, can you get another one? Hmm, maybe by the end of the week. I'll talk to Riza. Now, just so you know, it's not like I'm all fun and games. To start with, I was the one who took over the lab after Pedersen and the others were let go. And more importantly, I was the one who made sure we got all the equipment we needed, being out here on the edge of the Middle East. That went for just about everything else Western we required, too. And because of my efforts, we were probably the only research facility in Turkey with its own water cooler, rice cooker, toaster, and satellite dish. Actually, I don't think I could have survived in Istanbul if it hadn't been for my various acquisitions. In particular, the air conditioners and the American beer. There was one thing, however, that I'd never been able to find, no matter how hard I tried. And it had left me a broken man. A real honest-to-goodness steak. Sounds strange, I know, but if you're at all familiar with Turkish food, you know how impossible such a task can be. I couldn't even order one from the butchers and have them wrap it up to take it home because I didn't know how to cut the damn thing. Yet, despite my pining for a good tea rib, most of the comforts of home I'd somehow been able to procure over the last 30-some months of my stay, by hook or by crook, something which had earned me the title of Robber Baron. And Riza? Well, Riza was my baroness. And frankly, the person with the contacts who finagled all of our special quote-unquote business items in the first place. My girl Friday, as much as my girlfriend. Our fix-it femme. She was also an Istanbul girl through and through, with all the amenities. 
which sometimes made life both interesting and complicated. Especially right then, being it was the fourth day of Ramadan, or Ramadan as other countries called it, the holy month. And Riza, being a slightly conservative Muslim despite her cosmo-western dress and sometimes shameless flirting, was fasting with the rest, which meant from sunrise to sunset each day, nothing could pass through those lovely lips of hers. No food, no drink, and no cigarettes. That last one was the prickly part, leaving her particularly on edge. And trust me, you do not want Riza on edge. Out of respect for Ramazan and the Turks, I'd tried to fast too, but I didn't even make it through the second day. I eventually broke down when it came to water, and as a result, I finally ended my fasting altogether. Still, out of consideration for others, like Mustafa in our lab, I didn't eat in front of the Turks during the day, and certainly not in front of Riza. In fact, as a reward for going without her precious Tikal cigarettes, I took Riza that night to the Hippodrome, the historic boulevard that once hosted chariot races, and which these days ran adjacent to Istanbul's legendary and beautiful Blue Mosque. In celebration of Ramazan, each night a little carnival had sprung up along the street, complete with kitty rides. We even brought mince with us, Riza's papillon, her little feather duster of a dog with butterfly ears, because she hated to leave him home alone after being gone all day. The poor guy didn't exactly look like he was having fun, though, the noise and the surge of people hardly being his thing. Mince, after all, was the most nervous dog in the world, who would actually faint dead away at the boom of a thunderclap or the start of a vacuum. No joke. It was apparently some hereditary nervous disorder. Still, I liked the little guy. He could be awfully spunky when he wasn't catatonic. Plus, like me, he loved Turkish brandy. Just little sips, of course. Probably helped him get through the day, given his nerves. The three of us were just exiting the Karagos puppet show, Turkey's answer to Punch and Judy, when I decided to check my cell phone. A double beep told me I had voicemail waiting. One message. I typed in the access code, and Kyung's voice came on, more agitated than usual. Okay, Polly. Very funny. You know I have to be here in the lab tonight. Oh, did you forget that? It's already pretty bleeping cold, so I'd appreciate it if you brought them back. Like, now. Plus, all the desk stuff's all over the floor now. Jeez, Sky, what were you thinking? Huh? What is it, Paul? Riza, I think Kyung's lost his mind. Those last little itty-bitty gray cells have finally gone bye-bye. What are you talking about? No, the question is, what is Kyung talking about? We better stop by the lab. <sighs> Do we have to? We'll come right back. We'll even take in one of the whirling dervish shows later. You said we were going to do that anyway. Oh, brother. Uh, fine, we'll just sit through two shows now, okay? Jeez, sometimes you're as bad as Kyung. Ow! Hey! Due to Kyung's old world views, like Mesozoic old world, including his occasional comment about a woman's place, Riza thought him like most Turkish men she knew. In fact, her one-word assessment of the opposite sex here in Turkey was stupid. Which was mostly due to their sometimes old-world approach when it came to women. At least they didn't grab and grope Turkish girls on the tram the way a few of them did the Western women. 
But this was partly because Riza and her crowd always carried pins with them. It was a bit due to all these things that Riza's heart had warmed to me, I suppose. Even then, I knew my limitations with her, and I did not plan to cross that line. I'd seen what happened on such occasions, like the day I'd come by her office to get her for lunch back when we first started dating. Five minutes before I arrived, there had been a little trouble with some of the, um, shall we call them, staffers. See, Riza had won her travel agency job, not so much because of her customer service skills and experience, which she had none of, incidentally, but because of her connections. Istanbul, in part due to the approaching American invasion of Iraq, had become a bit of a Casablanca, everyone struggling to get out before the fighting began. And acquiring visas in Turkey was no small feat. But Riza, through her family's connections, had the capability to get them. It meant money, however, lots of it, greasing palms at every turn. The time I'd come to pick her up for lunch, her two staffers, basically your garden variety street muscle, who'd been hired to carry out the necessary palm greasing and strong arming, had instead returned with bad news. Seemed a mistake had been made and the money lost without any visa. I had been climbing Riza's office steps when I heard her start screaming. A second later, her agency's two thugs bolted down the stairs past me, tripping and falling, just as a computer monitor came tumbling down the staircase after them. In my limited Turkish, I didn't catch every word Riza said, but I got the gist of it all right, and so did they. Needless to say, it was a valuable lesson not wasted on a certain Paul Fitzwilliams, me that is, who made sure that henceforth any bad news to my girlfriend was conveniently imparted over the phone, preferably within sprinting distance of the airport. On the fifth floor of our lab's building, with Riza and Mintz beside me, I inserted my key into the lab's outer wooden door and yanked on the handle. The door always stuck, and this time was no exception. Here, let me. Riza's father owned the building, which is how I'd met her in the first place. So she calmly put mints down, brushed dog hair from the front of her turtleneck, and commandeered the door's silver handle, twisting it subtly. There you are. After you. As the door swung open... Mintz just stood there, shaking, his favorite pastime. He was putting more effort into it than usual, though, and for some reason, maybe due to his reaction, I suddenly began to shiver myself. That's weird. The lights seem brighter in here than I remember. Much brighter. Maybe it's because there's no sunlight coming in to compete right now. Maybe, but it still doesn't look right for some reason. Plus, it's damn cold. About as cold as outside. Looks like Doomkoff Kyung left all the windows open. All of them all along the front wall. Why? He likes it cold? No, but who knows. Maybe he managed to stink up the place with one of his new and totally verboten experiments. Or maybe he was trying to clear out some smoke. Smoke? Sweetie, Kyung's a born klutz. Don't tell your father, but uh, I saw him accidentally set fire to his desk about six months ago. Maybe he gave a repeat performance here tonight. At least the building's still standing, though. Paul, it stinks in here. Like... like rotten bananas. 
Yeah. What the? And there's water all over the floor, too. Really? Yeah, by the walls here. Maybe Dum Dum did set fire to something, and then had to put it out. God help us. As we headed toward the lab rooms in the back, I occasionally leapfrogged a puddle or two. Mince, behind me, of course, growled and leapt over the spots, too, finally scooting in behind Reese's heels so close she almost tripped. He wasn't taking any chances, apparently. Kyung? Though the lights were on, the desks were empty, not a soul around. If the cleaning people had been here, you wouldn't have known it. Papers were scattered all over the floor thanks to the breeze from the open windows. Some of the papers were wet, most of them mine. I was a slob when it came to my lab desk and most other things, actually. But at least I knew where everything was. Of course, I knew where everything was now, too. On the floor. Kyung! Did you hear anything? No. Well, even if he's here, Andy replied, we probably couldn't hear him with the windows open. I'll close them just so it's not so cold. Holy... Riza? What? Um, the windows are closed, sweetie. They are? But... There's no glass in them. No glass? None. Both panes, top and bottom. And look, it's, it's that way with all the windows. What? There's no broken shards. Doesn't look like anybody pried them out. What goes on here? And look at the pictures on the wall. The ones I bought down at the Grand Bazaar in Kapali Karsi. Look at them. All the photos have turned gray. All of them. Like the images just burned away. Hey, the glass in their frames is missing too. What did you do to them? They were all fine yesterday. I didn't do anything to them. Kyung! Time to put the intercom to good use. Kyung! Paging Mr. Kyung Kwan. Where the hell are you? Yes, I'm here. What do you want? <laughs> He's here. Probably in the back lab. Hey, you know how I thought the lights were brighter when we came in? Um, they might be, but I think part of it has to do with the yellow walls. So? Maybe it's just me, but uh, I could swear those walls were a soft rose color this afternoon. Not yellow. Paul, you're right. And feel them. The walls are dry. Even if this was some practical joke and somebody had actually repainted them, the paint would still be wet, and it would have smelled a lot different than this ugly banana odor in here. We headed on toward the back lab. Each photo we passed looked back at us with the same dour gray. Their images consumed. I started really getting the shivers, more than I could credit to the naked windows, like my grip on reality was slipping. I even turned around to make sure Riza was still behind me, witnessing the same things I was. She looked more spooked than me even, and started edging closer, ready to nab my arm like some flesh and blood security blanket. We found my Korean co-worker standing beside one of the spectrometers in Lab C at the far back, still in his trademark lucky Panama hat and sandals. Kyung, what the hell's going on here? Oh, nice try, Polly. Like, I'd do anything like this. Well, who repainted the hallway? Repainted the hallway? Man, you been smoking them water pipes again? 
Kyung, what color is the hall? What do you mean what color is the hall? I don't know what color the hall is. Who cares? <sighs> Kyung, that's not what I mean. Come here, look at this. Hey, mitts off, hound dog. Fine, just look at the wall, would you? Okay, I'm looking. So what? <sighs> this afternoon, the hallway was rose-colored. Almost dark pink, remember? Was it? Kyung, it's always been that color. Nah, you're kidding me. Boy, you are some kind of clueless. This is bizarre. Look, it, it's still chipped where it had been chipped before. I put that mark right here opening the door one time. And here the same dried paint is peeling off the wall in the same dried flecks. Except these dried flecks are now yellow. Tell me this is some kind of joke, Kyung. I thought that's your department. Kyung, has anyone been here with you tonight? Not that I know of. Uh, what about the glass in the windows? That's why I called you, Dingaling. This place has gone weird city. And just what are you doing here anyway, Kyung? I'm working on that stupid shoelace thing. Man, it's goofy. And he headed back into the lab again, practically kicking his way through mints en route. The little guy started barking at him, not that I could blame the poor pooch. Mints had never liked Kyung, often refusing to even sit in the same room with him. The feeling was more than mutual. You're working on that shoelace? That bookmark? Yep. Sheesh! Did you have to bring Scooby-Poo with you? You couldn't find a smaller, more annoying dog? I did my best. Just for you. And what did you do to my wife's book, Pa? Your wife's book? Just look at it. She's gonna kill me. She can't return it to the library like that. I opened the book. It was bloated. The pages were thicker, rubbery. I gripped one page, feeling its odd, damp surface. I tried to tear a corner away, then tried to tear a page out. It was impossible. I wasn't even sure a hacksaw could get through the thing. As I flipped through more pages, my hand came away covered with something like ash. The book's ink had changed from black to battleship gray and was coming off like powder. I brushed my hand across one page, smearing the lines of text. The novel's dusty ink coated my fingers and palm. And that's when my skin started burning. Cripes, what the... I tried to brush it off, finally making a beeline past Riza and her motherly intentions to the corner sink. I scrubbed at the powder frantically, afterwards shaking the water off and staring at my poor reddened hands. This stuff's like acid. Kyung, what'd you do, dip it in something? What, it hurt you? My wife's book is getting its revenge? Don't look at me, sissy boy. I abandoned my usual comeback and just clutched my hand, wincing, as Riza hovered nearby, waiting to play Florence Nightingale. This wasn't making any sense at all. I felt like I'd been thrown in a funhouse, minus all the fun. I don't know what drew me to the notion, maybe it was its earlier link to the now indestructible book, but the only thing that stood out amidst this madness was Kyung's pet project, that weirdo shoelace, that strange bit of nothing. Riza herded me into a chair and seized my hand, her concern for me instantly overcoming her own anxieties. Mints, meanwhile, had begun barking at oddly precise intervals, one yip every second like some furry metronome. I looked up to see the little scaredy pup staring strangely into the air near the center of the room, trembling even more than before. I couldn't imagine what unsightly menace had set him off this time, a mosquito, a speck of dust, Either way, it was giving me the willies. 
Kyung, where's the shoelace? And where did it come from anyway? Professor Lavov. Lavov? The guy with the leg braces? He brought the thing in from Ephesus. The old Roman ruins. But I don't think the Romans had anything to do with it. Why? Because of this printout from the spectrometer. Here. Um, I don't get it. That makes two of us, bum skull. Obviously, I couldn't run a C-14 on it. This can't be correct. This is the potassium argon readout? The machine's working, right? What's wrong? Well, except for a few naked grid lines, this little old sheet is completely blank. So? Well, every organic object has radioactive carbon isotopes in it. An atom called C-14, which then decays after a period of time into nitrogen, um, 14. Another type of atom. Did I lose you? Long ago. So these atoms decay. Sort of like your dirty laundry after a month. Yeah, that's about right. Smart stuff. Anyway, the less C14 in the object, the older it is. Same goes for the potassium argon testing. The greater the object's age, the lower the amount of radioactive potassium. And this doesn't have any potassium in it. Kyung, you ran this again? Four times. And a spectral analysis? Of course. And how'd that come out? Well, that's what's so odd. Both machines decided to crash at the same time. But I got this from the NAI and Peyton's old machine. Even ran tests on a few control samples afterwards, before the stupid things fail. The controls came out fine. These didn't. Of course, I'll need to check more, but it doesn't seem to match any known fingerprint. I gawked at the sheet again, squinting, my eyes burning a little. I could swear the light's intensity had just jumped another couple dozen candles per square inch. And then, just as I focused harder, <gasps> the lights went out entirely. Each of us swore in turn, bumping around as our eyes adjusted to the darkness. But it wasn't completely dark. An odd chromium glow emanated from the lab table nearest us. Actually, from an object that lay atop it. The shoelace. And so concludes part one of Uniform, 
The cast for this podcast included Otto Fung as Kyung, Maggie Irvin as Riza, Mince as Mince the Wonder Dog, and I, Michael McGee, was, uh, alas, the voice of Paul. Much to the comic delight, I'm sure, of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 cast. The music, which was really indispensable in this podcast, came from incredible performers such as Lee Matterford, Rob Vandenberg, Sarah Alexander, Miola Sparkus, who recorded the tune you're listening to now, called Phoenix, and several other musicians. And it was the band Fousseau who wrote and performed the theme for the Theater of the Midnight Sun, called The Copper Locked Nymph. All the song and music titles and the names of the artists heard in this episode can be found on the music page at the Theater of the Midnight Sun website at theaterofthemidnightsun.podbean.com. Most of the music was courtesy of websites such as the Podshow Podsafe Network, GarageBand, and Magnatune. So that's it for this episode. Check back for episode two of Uniform. Or hit that old subscribe button or follow us to be notified about the release of the next episode. Until then, this is Michael McGee saying no need to wake Shakespeare or bother Mark Twain and no use in worrying Broadway or even your local high school thespians. It's just us, the theater of the Midnight Sun. <laughs>